News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. That right there is the band whose posters graced the walls of my bedroom when I was growing up. So how pleased was I to hear that Duran Duran making it into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Let's talk more about some of the other names on this list, too. Alan Cross is with us now, music journalist. Good morning, Alan. Oh, good morning. We're gonna, are we going to fight about this, or are we going to uh, – <laughs> how are we going to do this? Are we going to do this, hmm. this Did you uh, Okay. This is going to be a tough one because are you telling me right now that you think Duran Duran was unworthy? No, 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 no. Duran Duran was one of the very few artists on the performers list that actually should have made it in. I'm, I'm okay with that. Uh, I have some issues with just about everybody else. What? Okay, let's go through this list. And I can't believe you're telling me that you have issues with Pat Benatar. No, uh, let's let's just back up a little bit. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is run by about a thousand people who are hell bent on expanding the definition of rock and roll. They believe that rock is a genre. Rock and roll encompasses much more and is is more of an attitude and an aesthetic than it is a sound or a way of of making music. Now let's just now that we got that out of the way, then we can now we can go through the list. So Pat Benatar absolutely should be on this list. She was a hard rocking woman at a time when there were very few hard rocking exactly. women. Exactly. Early 1980s, we had Hart, we had the Runaways, then we had Joan Jett and Pat Benatar, and that was pretty much it. I mean, in Canada, we had uh, the Headstones with Darby Mills and and maybe a few others, but uh, you know, she was an absolute groundbreaker. Definitely deserves to be in. Duran Duran, I will, uh, I'll give it to them. They were at one point one of the biggest bands in the world. Uh, they were more of a new wave synth band, although they didn't yes. have traditional instruments. But again, um, I'll, I'll, I'll go with it. Um, Eminem, okay, first time nominee. He's a rap artist. He's a hip hop guy. Uh, there's an example of this expanding definition of what rock and roll is. Um, Eurythmics, absolutely. Um, again, in the early years of MTV, they were a staple. Exactly. Annie Lennox was a force. Her uh, uh, gender bending, uh, the videos that she made with Dave Stewart. Dave Stewart went on to be a very important musician and producer. So I don't have any problem with that. Dolly Parton. Okay. <laughs> so, well, you know what, Alan, on this one, I will also say Dolly Parton also had a problem with being nominated for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. She did, but she brought it up too late. She brought it up after all the ballots had already gone out. So the hall said, sorry, Dolly, uh, you're going to have to accept it. Now, what's interesting about here uh, is that I believe she is the first person in the modern era of the uh, of, of, of popular music and in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. She's the first inductee to get into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame without releasing a rock album. Ever. Ever. So she right. says she's going to do one now, but, uh, you know, a little after the fact. So, okay, okay. let me, I mean, let listen. me just ask you this, Ellen. If we consider rock and roll to, con- to encompass, say, popular music, right? Pop music, which is, uh, I, I feel like that's what they're doing with all this. It, Could you yes. not argue that the work that she did in the early 80s, even like Kenny Rogers, Islands in the Stream, all of that would kind of fall into that category? Uh, yeah, if you want to subscribe to that giant umbrella and definition of rock and roll. Uh, but uh, if you grew up in the early eighties and you heard islands in the stream, uh, that was a, that, that sent you screaming for your Motley Crue records. 
I don't so, know. I grew up in Cloverdale, and I loved my Motley Crue records, <laughs> and I loved Islands in the Stream. So, well, all right, <laughs> I love fine, them both. all right. Let's move on to Carly Simon. Gee, I remember growing up in the seventies and doing a lot of headbanging to her. Uh, you know, songs like Anticipation and Nobody Does It Better and Mockingbird with James Taylor. Wow, I mean, woo, rock and roll. Um, <laughs> but the one that really drives me nuts is Lionel Richie. Why? Um, well, okay, let's just do. Okay, Lionel Richie, who does songs like Hello and, and Dancing on the Ceiling and whatever. Great songs. Fine. I won't argue with that. But Lionel Richie gets in over Devo, over Rage Against the Machine, over the New York Dolls, over Beck, over the MC5. What? Yes. What, what, I mean, <laughs> I'm going to go with the unpopular opinion here and say yes, just because I love Lionel Richie. That's not good enough. It's just a, and then, then we have you know this this asterisk category, the the Musical Excellence Award, which you know, I, I don't even know what that means. Uh, and finally, after many attempts, Judas Priest, an actual rock band, uh, gets in, but uh, through this this sort of back doorway they're they're not good enough to make it in with the performers they're not as worthy to be a rock and roll hall of fame performer as lionel richie but they're going to give them this sort of tim hortons participation trophy and and, and put them in that way so uh, I, you know i i've always I, i've always had a lot of problems with the rock and roll hall of fame not the museum the museum is great but you know what this this social engineering that's going on with you know what these this group is trying to tell us is rock and roll so and what what is it drives me nuts okay so if they change their name then ellen if they Won't said happen. we are the popular music hall of fame would that be Won't better happen. i know nope. but I'm just saying. It, it won't and it's it's useless arguing about it because they've got their way of doing things nothing's ever going to change um one other thing to point out this this year's kind of weird is that um this is the first time since uh, 1999 when an actual traditional rock band has not been inducted. Back in 1999, we had Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band. That's more or less a solo situation. And Paul McCartney, um, you know, two rock artists, quite, no question about it, but they're, they're solo artists. That was the last time we had a ballot where there was no traditional rock band involved outside of this musical excellence award that Judas Priest got. So no guitar, bass and drums, unless you really want to stretch the, 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 uh, the uh, definition a little bit to, to include uh, right. Duran Duran. So, um, you know, this is the problem I, I have with this concept of the rock and roll hall of fame is, you know, you put in Lionel Richie a couple of years ago, they put in Whitney Houston. I mean, there is nothing rock and roll about Whitney Houston at all. Uh, and, and, you know, people who like, who, who bought into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame at the very beginning, which was this was going to honor rock stars, uh, we look at this and go, you've got no more credibility. Hmm. So uh, I know you named a few there, but is there somebody that really egregiously you can think of who should be in but isn't at this point? Um, I don't, th- well, I, I mentioned Rage Against the Machine, the MC5, New York Dolls, for sure. Um, I don't know uh, if, if Iron Maiden isn't in, they should be. Mm, that's a good one too. Well, Judas Priest, I'm surprised it's taken this long to even get them in the back door because come on, that's Judas Priest. Well, yeah. And there, there seems to be, um, a bias against metal, um, with the voters. That's so uh, ironic. For some, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I don't know why. Um, but there does seem to be this, this weird bias. 
Well, I have to say that I was actually kind of delighted to see all the people from my childhood make it into the quote-unquote <coughs> Rock and Roll Hall of Fame this year. So, Alan, thank you for enlightening me this morning. Well, sorry sorry to be such a, a downer, <laughs> but... Uh, it's okay. I appreciate that. You made some excellent points. Thank you for your time. You're welcome. That is Alan Cross, music journalist, talking about this year's inductee class for the, yes, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And I was actually pleased to see Pat Benatar, Duran Duran, Eminem, Eurythmics, Dolly Parton, Lana Ritchie, Carly Simon all make it in, maybe because that's just what I was listening to back in the day. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi feel about standing in line? This is an important psychological question, I feel. Does it matter if you're in the longest line and it moves really slowly? Or does getting to the front involve treating it like a Formula One race? Let's find out Raji Sohal's feelings on this right now. Good morning, Raji. Sumi, I have so many feelings about standing in line. And I was recently reminded of them when I was in London. As you know, I, I went took a little trip there. And you, in order to get a drink at the bar, you have to go to the bar and you're supposed to queue. But the queue just looks like a bunch of people smashed next to each other. And often I was the only woman at the bar waiting to be served. And you have to, it's a strategy. You have to have game tactics, go in there ready to fight. Um, And I didn't have much fight in me, so... (laughs) So it came. I came back with an appreciation for how we queue here. I don't know why they say in England people. Uh, yeah, that's what a, I thought. I was just thinking that. I thought they no, said that they were the very good at queuing. Very good at queuing in shop lineups, waiting for a bus or at the underground. Very orderly. But uh, in waiting for a drink, absolutely not. Then yesterday, I can't believe I'm one of these people now, but I was uh, in line for a coffee And I got a text. So I put my head down to just quickly check my text. And someone jumped in front of me. And he said, it's your fault. You checked your text. So he was like actually looking at my phone to see what I was doing. And then he called me a name. And I thought, really? Wow. We were just in line together. That is super creepy. Now now we're... (laughs) We're ready to go for it. So. Also, I wonder what you're like. So when you're in the grocery store and there's like multiple open cashiers, do you watch other lineups and then like regret not getting in that lineup over there? You bet. So I think this is all about psychology. And what I try to do is to judge the cashier's efficiency based upon their mannerisms. So I don't get into the queue based upon how many like grocery people have in their baskets and whatnot. No, I look at the actual cashier. Is it an efficient cashier? I worked in retail a lot in high school and I have an appreciation for an efficient uh, cashier Hmm. and efficient customer service. So I watch for who's going the quickest behind the till. That's the lineup I choose. I try to do the serenity now, right? Where you want the fastest lineup, but then if I'm not in the fastest lineup and I've clearly made a mistake, I'm not going to go zip around and then try to move into another lineup. I try to do the serenity now. Just stay here. It's going to be fine. You'll be done quickly. But I know that for a lot of people, standing in line is absolutely, they just, they feel like their time can be better spent. So it's absolutely horrible. And now what the people are being paid to do this? Yeah, there are ads on Craigslist, Facebook, uh, you know, there are apps for it, basically offering to stand in line for people who think that their time would be better spent doing something else. And it's not cheap. 
Uh, it's happening here in Vancouver with um, passport renewal lineups. Um, and people are paying hundreds of dollars to get somebody else to stand in line for them. I mean, it sounds practical, right? Like these days you can pay someone just, you know, you can pay people to do just about anything for you. Um, but I, I think that where the danger lies in this is whose time is more valuable? Um, when somebody just has to, sh- you know, pass over a couple hundred dollars to get someone else to stand in queue for them, what is that person standing in queue for? How long are they standing in line for? What are the conditions that they're standing in line for? Are they like being rained on and hailed on? We've had funny weather in Vancouver. I wouldn't want to, um, you know, stand in line for someone else. In even in if you were getting paid, like I'm looking at some of these rates and people are charging yeah, like thirty, forty, fifty dollars an hour to do this. Would you pay somebody to stand in line? Oh, there have been times when I would have had to, uh, emergency situations if, if so I So that's a yes. Yeah, it's a yes, but you know what? <laughs> this is a great gig for a high school student. Imagine all the books I, I could have read while in lineup. Or you could sit I, in line and do your homework. That stuff sounds great. See, I think I'm more inclined to be the person to be paid. I would do exactly that. Take my book, go stand in line. I don't have a problem with that. Raji, thank you. (laughs) Thanks, Simi. Good question for you this morning. Would you pay somebody to stand in line for you or would you rather be the person who gets paid to do the standing in line? Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. We've talked a lot recently about this problem that we have here in BC, particularly in different downtown cores of different cities in the province with repeat offenders. How to deal with people who are consistently and constantly being busted for breaking the law, property crimes, vandalism, what have you, and then they're right back out on the street to do it again and causing all sorts of issues. Well, there is a press conference coming up this morning where Attorney General David Eby says they're going to be talking about some creative solutions. One of those creative solutions came courtesy of Across the Aisle, a BC Liberal MLA, Mike Morris, the MLA for Prince George McKenzie, joins us now to talk more about this. Good morning. Thank you for being here. Good morning, Simi. My pleasure. Well, let's talk about this. Like Clearly, you must be hearing this from your constituents as well. Oh, I do all the time. Yes, it's prolific right through the province. And what are they saying in Prince George? Is it the same problems that we hear about in downtown Vancouver? It is. It's more concentrated in Prince George. Uh, there's a there's a greater level of it taking place in the city of Prince George. The crime rate is uh, significantly higher there. But uh, yeah, I know what's happening there. It's happening in Terrace. It's happening in Quinell. It's happening in every community we have where we're, where um, we have crime. Okay. And so what has been your suggestion when you had an opportunity to suggest a few things to the attorney general? What did you say? Uh, well, I, I read, you know, I, I've, <clears throat> excuse me, I've reviewed all of the decisions uh, that uh, have changed how Crown Counsel and how prosecutors do business over the last number of years. Um, but, uh, you know, I've, I spent my whole working career reading key decisions all the time that impacted work. So uh, I just carried on with that. And uh, the last decision, uh, there's a couple of them, but the last decision in particular, it's reference to Zora and the the Attorney General has spoken about it before. But uh, the first thing that jumped out at me from that decision was the court's wording in in their decision where they're talking about individualized uh, bail conditions. And uh, they go into great lengths, but just the wording that they use, they're expecting prosecutors now to individualize the conditions for each person that is released on bail. Uh, so that they understand it, and uh, you know, the the all of this sort of stems from um, a, a challenge to the charter uh, under 11E of the charter, the right not to be detained without bail, and uh, so this is just sort of a continuation on of that particular case. 
But, uh, you know, I, I'm quite surprised it's taken this long for uh, the attorney and, and his staff to recognize that something needed to be done because this decision has been out now for a couple of years. Okay, so when you talk about individualized conditions, how can we make that work then? How can we improve that? Yeah, uh, well, it's, uh, you know, a number of things that come to mind for me. Uh, You know, if I was sitting in that chair, I'd be putting more staff on there to make sure that, you know, a prosecutor, uh, every community has a handful of of prolific offenders. City of Prince George might have uh, 25 or 30 prolific offenders. Uh, that would mean that you would probably appoint uh, a handful of prosecutors to babysit these individuals and that they would be the ones that would be taking these uh, respective cases before the court for bail conditions uh, or for anything for that matter. So you just dedicate these resources so that they know that person inside out, uh, they can sit down with them, they can go over every aspect of their bail conditions so that the individual understands it fully. Uh, so that if he does breach it, uh, there'd be a chance to hold him the next time. Is there also an advantage in that then, in being able to have somebody who knows that offender well, explain to the court, this is how well we know this offender, rather than talking about it in generalized terms? Oh, exactly. And the the court uh, responded to that in this particular case, too. So you can't apply a general application of bail conditions any longer. It's got to be individualized. So by doing that, the prosecutor will get to know that individual inside out and uh, will be able to present the personal circumstances, uh, the discussion that they've had uh, surrounding those conditions and, uh, um, and, and see where that flies. The, the criminal code actually designates the prosecutor as presenting to the judge all those kinds of, of conditions anyway. So it, this just falls in line with that. So where do you see that ending up? Do you see that as the the repeat offender potentially better understanding the situation and maybe getting help? Or do you see that as, you know, the repeat and re- repeat offender ending up with incarceration? Well, probably the repeat offender ending up with incarceration for the most part. You know, these, these uh, offenders... Uh, they understand the system perfectly. They know where the loopholes are. They know that the courts are, uh, or that the prosecution is hamstrung a little bit in, in trying to deal with them, and they will take advantage of that at every opportunity they get. So you can't take what they say at face value. You have to, uh, you know, if there's any evidence at all that the person has been disingenuous in the past, he'll probably be disingenuous in the future. Is it your understanding, then, that this is what's one of the things that's going to be announced today? Um, well, you know, he mentioned it the other day in the House uh, when we, uh, during question period, uh, so I would imagine, and, and it's just, you know, f- from my perspective, you know, <laughs> I guess I make a poor critic because I'm always trying to find solutions to problems here, but, uh, you know, when, when I looked at this, this jumped out at me, and his staff should have uh, seen this uh, two years ago when this decision first came out and acted upon it at that particular time, but we'll see. And then there's other wordings in that particular uh, um decisions as well that uh, I think perhaps it's time the Attorney General maybe submitted something to the federal government to uh, to make some modifications to the criminal code as well. Do you think that there's, there is like a subgroup of these repeat offenders who cannot be helped, cannot, it's not going to be about therapy, it's not going to be about giving them assistance? Well, for sure there is. And I came across uh, individuals like that, uh, you know, in my policing career as well. A lot of them have acquired brain injuries as a result of too many overdoses or drugs or alcohol or a number of different factors involved there. And that's why there's there should be an urgency in developing these addictions treatment centers and detox uh, centers as well. 
I think British Columbians like it when they know that different political parties are working together to find a solution that affects everybody. What else would you suggest then to the government to deal with this? Well, the sooner they have uh, some treatment centers so that we can take that element out of the criminal justice system, so we can take the the uh, addictions, alcohol, uh, mental illness out of the criminal justice system and, and, and get some treatment for these individuals so that the courts can concentrate on the real criminals, the ones that are selling the fentanyl and, and uh, causing all the opioid deaths that we have out there. So do you think, yeah, we need to go harder on that? Like go after the people who are selling this and creating this because obviously the drugs have changed, but our, the way we go after them hasn't really changed. Uh, just because of, of the proliferation of that. Uh, there are just so many now, uh, and fentanyl is so widespread, and it's, you know, these uh, individuals that are addicted are chasing that high. So it's, it's just an increased market for the uh, illegal drug, uh, drug distributors here. So that really needs to have a concentrated effort. All right, well, we'll see what happens today, and I'm sure we'll be talking to you again about it. Thank you for your time. You bet. Take care. That's Mike Morris. He's the BC Liberal MLA for Prince George Mackenzie, also the critic for public safety and the Solicitor General. It was one of his ideas that we're probably going to hear a little bit more about later today with Attorney General David Eby. Uh, He had suggested that maybe what we need is to have special dedicated Crown Counsel just dealing with repeat offenders. We heard actually David Eby say that on our show last time we had him on, just recently within the last couple of weeks, where he said, you know, when you're dealing with repeat offenders, quite often in the system, police officers, they'll be able to tell you that person's name. They can recognize them, tell them that name, like they know them because they have been busting them time and time again. So when they get into the court system, if the police officers are recognizing them, let's have them deal with Crown Counsel who also know them and can then explain to the judge in question how well they know them and what's going to work in this situation if the regular way of dealing with it is not working. One of the things we expect to hear about from the Attorney General today when he has a press conference, we expect it to be about dealing with repeat offenders, some new, potentially, quote, creative solutions on that front, because you heard Mike Morris say it too. This is happening right across BC. I would probably argue right across Canada. Prince George is seeing it. You know, every every city community is seeing a version of this. So we'll have complete coverage of that. Make sure you stay tuned right here for the latest. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, this next story is definitely falling into that category of you can't make this stuff up. There was a small plane crash in northwestern Ontario last week. You might not have even heard about it in the news until police identified the people who were killed in that crash. For more on that, we're joined now by Kim Bolin, Vancouver Sun crime reporter who's been covering this story. Hi, Kim. Good morning. So this is the ongoing saga because we've talked to you several times about this same story. What is the connection of this plane crash to this murder that happened in Thailand? Well, uh, the key fugitive that police have been hunting for since February, uh, Gene Larkamp, was aboard that plane. And he was aboard that plane with another wanted BC man, uh, someone named Duncan Bailey from Kamloops, who has been charged in a conspiracy to commit murder for a shooting in October of 2020 outside a Westside Vancouver pub. And uh, the target who survived that but was killed a few months later was literally carrying his baby's car seat with his baby inside and had uh, was also holding the hand of a toddler. So it was one of those shootings that could have been so much worse. Uh, so now we've got these 
two fugitives. Uh, Mr. Bailey was out on bail in the other case, which is before BC Supreme Court, and uh, he wasn't adhering allegedly to his bail conditions. So a warrant was issued for his arrest uh, just last week. And now we find that these two fugitives uh, were in this tiny Piper four-seater airplane that appears to have flown across Canada, and it's crashed near Sulukat, Ontario, probably on the night of April 29th, although their remains were not found until the next morning. Okay, and what do we know about the flight, like where it originated, what it was doing traveling across the country? Well, the, the officials haven't released anything. However, you can, you know, check uh, online radar sites and sort of follow planes across country. I think all the plane buffs do that. I've learned a lot about it in the last few days. I'll bet. Uh, so, so this small piper is owned by a woman in Richmond, B.C. I've been trying to talk to her for two days, but haven't been successful yet. You know, it's possible she just leased the plane out. Uh, it was being driven, uh, flown by a young pilot named uh, Abby Handa, uh, who graduated a couple of years ago, um, you know, according to his Facebook page and his social media sites. Uh, and the fourth person aboard that plane, who was also killed, was another young pilot from Richmond, B.C., a uh, 27-year-old named Hank Hong. And we don't know if these young guys had any idea who these other two people were aboard the plane. But again, according to this uh, online radar site, the plane took off from a tiny little airport in Delta, not Boundary Bay, Heritage Park Airport, which apparently has just a grass runway, on the evening of April 23rd, just before 6 p.m. Then it appeared to fly back and forth over the Fraser Valley, land again at Boundary Bay Airport before heading east. Uh, We know that it didn't leave southern uh, Alberta, for example, until the 28th. What, What it was doing, you know, over those five days where it was parked, we don't know. Right. Did it pick someone up there? Uh, then the plane across crossed the prairies and got into um, you know western uh, northwestern Ontario and uh, landed or was in Dryden apparently Dryden Ontario uh, on the evening of April 29th left and it looks like it crashed a short time after that. Hmm. Okay. And so you mentioned uh, Jean Larkamp there. This is somebody that you have kind of been tracking down too, isn't it? Oh, yeah, for sure. I was up in trail in February where he owns a home and had been raising uh, dogs there uh, because he wasn't identified as a suspect by name until after he and his co-accused Matthew Dupre left Thailand. So, you know, the Royal Thai police uh, figured out these two Canadians uh, were linked to the murder of Jimmy Sandu. A BC gangster grew up in Abbotsford but was deported for serious criminality uh, and had been living sort of in India, then Vietnam, and then was uh, vacationing or settling in Thailand when he was shot to death on February 5th. Uh, we saw these very dramatic photos of, of the shooters, you know, hooded uh, in a dark sort of street, gunning him down in front of his uh, villa in a seaside resort. And then they fled the country. Royal Thai police identified them as these two Canadians, both are ex-military. A short time later, photos were released of them, and uh, they were, you know, um, provisional arrest warrants were issued. Dupre was found in Sylvan Lake, Alberta, where he lived. Larkamp was not found. So, uh, ironically, just four days before he appears to have died, uh, police, uh, with the help of this nonprofit group, Bolo, Beyond the Lookout, 
announced a $100,000 reward for the arrest of Larkamp. And now, uh, you know, that reward has been cancelled, and uh, this fellow is, is apparently dead. Hmm, okay, the twists and turns in this story, man. So, Kim, what are the questions that you still have with this? Like, what are the next steps here? Well, I think, you know, there are police investigating both in B.C. and in Ontario. The Ontario Provincial Police is looking at the criminal, potential criminal elements related to the plane crash, the people being aboard, where they were headed, all those things. But so the Transportation Safety Board is looking at the actual plane crash. What went, went wrong with this, you know, uh, very small aircraft? I mean, it's not the normal aircraft you would fly across Canada, according to flight experts I've talked to in the last couple of days. Uh, so they're going to do a report on what went wrong. Of course, there's all kinds of conspiracy theories already floating around. They're not really dead. They faked it. Uh, but, you know, I don't think you could really fake a plane crash like that and have four bodies aboard afterwards. Uh, but obviously, you know, I would assume that autopsies involve DNA testing, for example, something they might not normally do in mm-hmm. a plane crash like this, right? So I want to know where they were going, right? Like, um, yes. you know, clearly uh, Mr. Bailey had decided uh, to, you know, duck and, and leave, even though he was before the courts. He hadn't been found guilty at this point in time. He had served an earlier stretch uh, for a conspiracy uh, to traffic uh, cocaine in Alberta. So he is someone with a criminal history. Larkamp is not. Um, but, you know, I guess the prospect of being potentially extradited to Thailand, uh, which has very serious penalties in its criminal code, were too much for him. And he decided, you know, that uh, he was going to try to flee. But very unusual story, as you said, from beginning to end, because I can't figure out where they're going. Are they going to make their way you know, to the East Coast and try and get on some ship to get out of the country. Um, you know, normally we know people cross the border here in BC. It's a long, un- unprotected border, and they sneak into the United States. So it's perplexing to not have a clue as to where they were going. I did talk to someone who's mm-hmm. a friend of a relative of one of the pilots who said they were going to land in Toronto because one of the pilots had uh, gotten a job there. And also tried to suggest, and I haven't got this confirmed, that the pilots, uh, because they were, you know, fresh out of flight school, uh, were doing some um, air taxi service so that they could be completely innocent parties in this. But, um, you know, surely the request to fly these people slowly across the country should have raised some eyebrows, right? That's what I was thinking, too. Kim, thank you, as always, for explaining that to us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Fascinating work. Kim Boland, Vancouver Sun crime reporter. You can read her latest on this in the Vancouver Sun. You should check it out because this story has been ongoing now, starting with that uh, murder in Thailand that was caught on tape. And then the people wanted in connection with that ending up being in B.C. And now one of them has been killed in a plane crash in northwestern Ontario. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, I remember a couple of de- decades back, wasn't that long ago, when midwives were just struggling for recognition in BC. And now they are so popular that they are doing about 25% of the births that happen in this province. So what is the state of the midwifery profession? Joining us now is our contributor, Raji Silhal. Hi, Raji. 
Hi, Simi. Yes, like you said, midwifery is playing a larger role in BC healthcare than it ever has historically. And BC midwives are in a really unique position compared to the rest of the country. So in our province, midwives can actually offer primary care. That means they can book any necessary consultations with specialists if needed. They can write up uh, prescriptions for medications. So they actually have a lot more autonomy uh, than in some of the other provinces. And one of the reasons that the midwife route here is very popular is because of the kind of care that it offers. And I think back to when I had my first baby, Simi, I know we talk about the the family doctor shortage here. I was one of those people who didn't really quite have a family doctor uh, that I was happy with. I finally got one and then I wasn't really happy with her. She was uh, very professional, but um, very impersonal. Uh, she's a little bit older than me and very, very clinical and diagnostic, never smiled. I didn't feel very comfortable uh, talking to her. And so when I looked into a team care environment of primary care with a midwife, a doula, OBGYN doctor, if needed, um, I decided, okay, this kind of setting is the, the way that I want to go. And I talked to Leahy Spiegelman. She's the president of the Midwives Association of BC and, a, and also a midwife herself. She says the midwife path is increasingly popular in our province because women want more personal care in the process a lot more based in what we call relational care, developing a relationship with the person and making sure that, you know, we're able to really understand your history, your values, your family life, how having a baby really fits into your world. Um, And part of that is just the art of midwifery is getting to know our patients really well and supporting informed choice and making sure that Um, The pregnant person always feels like they're the center of making decisions. That's really central to midwifery. Simi, it almost sounds uh, like common sense, right? Like who wouldn't want that kind of care? And when I had that kind of care and I was talking to other people who were also going the midwife uh, route, for a lot of us, maybe even all of us, we had a case of this is the first time I've felt really taken care of in the healthcare system. And we talk about, uh, you know, what will the solution be, for example, in general to the doctor shortage, a family doctor shortage that we're experiencing in, in BC. And one thing that keeps keeps coming up is this idea of team care. And Leahy thinks that when it comes to maternity care, team care is the only way that we're going to stabilize the healthcare services. We're going to think about patients first, and we're going to think about communities first. Um, then we really have to support team-based care um, because it's the only sustainable model and we all have something amazing to offer and how incredible for us to really be able to work together. It's always so amazing to me how we can seamlessly just work together and provide that really full comprehensive care um, and how you can have, you know, a patient can have several of us at a birth and, and it doesn't really matter so much who we are as long as we're providing that, that seamless and thoughtful and patient-centered care. And Simi, there's about 400 midwives currently in the province for about 40, a total of 45,000 births, and they are handling a good chunk of those births. The demand for them is high, but actually they are attracting a lot of new students into the field too. So there's a lot of uptake into the profession as well. So kind of uh, an interesting niche within our overall healthcare system. Um, it just as uh, their supply and demand there is being met. 
Boy, it is fascinating to me how times have changed. Like I was a health reporter uh, for a local TV station yeah. in, back in the mid-1990s, and I covered all these stories. And I remember how controversial it was back then that midwives were lobbying to have a college of midwifery and to be considered part of the healthcare system. Because at the time, there was a lot of resistance to that. And now look. Yeah, it's uh, it's blown up and a lot of people prefer this kind of care. Now, I have talked to some people, I've met people who chose not to go with a midwife because they didn't want that um, care. In the, They didn't want the, the midwife to know so much about them. They didn't want to share all of that. They really wanted to go with a more clinical route. And so they chose a family doctor for that reason. I know people also who chose just to stick with their family doctor because they adore their family doctor and felt like that person could already do a fabulous job of following them through to birth. But for me, it just, the experience of going with a midwife transformed the way I looked at healthcare. I would say you're very lucky if you feel that your family doctor can handle can handle all that, you know, and it really does depend. You're right. That personal care now of when you are going through pregnancy is so important. First time I went through it, I really didn't have a great experience. Second time I went through it, much better experience, but also because I knew more. But just the ability to have somebody with you who can give you that advice and know more, it is invaluable. So it's nice to see that we are putting more of a value on that. Yeah, and I asked Leahy if she feels like in general the government is supporting midwifery, and she said on the whole, yes, but they must continue to advocate for themselves to be seen um, as, you know, you've talked about this cultural shift in the way that we look at midwifery in the province, and that she thought we needed to just focus on uh, continuing to get support from the government um, and to to keep progressing as a profession, because it's, it's in demand. It certainly is. All right, thank you for that, Raji. Thanks. This is Mornings with Simi. I thought we'd take a moment here and help you do a little celebrating for Cinco de Mayo, which is today, of course. Maybe pour yourself a cocktail. I know it's early, but you can do this at some point later today. So what should that cocktail be? How do you make it? That's where we're turning to our next guest. It is Colin McDougall, Portfolio Consultant at Corby Spirit and Wine Limited. Good morning, Colin. Good morning. How are you? I am good. Thank you. I know it's a little early for cocktails, but you've got the full setup, right? I do. I do. Yeah. What would be traditional to have and do today on Cinco de Mayo? Yeah. I mean, Cinco de Mayo is literally this, the commemoration of the Battle of Puebla from like 1862. Um, but it has evolved over time to um, more signify like Mexican pride, um, the celebration of history, heritage, and, and some of the key products um, being obviously, you know, Mexican beers uh, and Mexican tequila. So okay. Tequila is a big one. Yeah. What do you tequila. have there for us? <laughs> and yeah, you're right. I am going to be batching this for later. So <laughs> this is... Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, We'll do, do a show. So, but uh, but I, essentially, what I wanted to show is, you know, the margarita is hands down the most um, widely recognized uh, drink with tequila, and uh, and I think it's also like what has the most variations. Hey, you got like blended margaritas, you've got classic margaritas, um, and it depends on the time of the year, really. Like for me, in the middle of summer or on vacation, a really well-made blended margarita is awesome. But uh, I thought for today, you know, we're up in Chile, Canada. Uh, I'd show you how to make just a classic margarita. Okay, that sounds good. But also, before we do that, talk to me a little bit about tequila, because it seems to me that in recent years, we have seen an explosion in the popularity of tequila. And so what is the difference in them? Is it how it's made? 
Yeah. So, I mean, there's basically two main spirits that we see up north here. There's tequila and there's mezcal. Tequila has to be made from a certain plant. It looks kind of like a buried pineapple. It's called an agave. And there's a type, which is called like Weber Blue. I won't get too into the details, but you get the idea. It has to be from like Chardonnay is made from Chardonnay, i.e. like that. So with tequila, it is it grows in and around uh, in a certain region of, of Mexico without getting into too many details. And there's lowland and highland versions. So ones grown like higher in the mountains tend to have a different flavor characteristic than ones grown in like a valley and lower. And so focusing on tequila there, where mezcal can be made from different types of agave plants, um, focusing on tequila here, like Altos, which I have, um, which the name would imply it's from the highlands. So it has a certain characteristic of, of having uh, some real richness to it. And, um, and, the, and the one that I have here and, and getting to the point of making margaritas, you gotta, you gotta pick a good tequila because a margarita is just a three ingredient drink. So you, you can't cheap out on the tequila because you can really taste it. All right. So let's say, let's assume we have not cheaped out on the tequila. <laughs> Where would we yeah. get started to make a classic margarita? So, I mean, I mean, you can go to BCL uh, to grab something like Altos here um, and uh, using like, say, say we've got Altos Omeka again, which is, this is our, our Plata. You'll see Plata are the ones that are unaged. So there's Plata, Silver, they go under a bunch, a couple different names, but it's uh, the clear one. Uh, and I like using that because it has the most agave-y flavor to it. If you do a Reposado or an Anejo, those are like older aged in oak for longer. So although they make amazing margaritas, they're arguably maybe more for sipping. So you've got yourself a good Silver Plata tequila. Um, you're going to use fresh lime juice next. So it's really key to use fresh lime juice and not like store-bought concentrate. And that's really going to be the, the key factor in this. And lastly, it's a triple sec, like a Cointreau or triple sec, an orange liqueur um, to, to bring all those ingredients together. All right. Well, this sounds delicious as you pour away here, but is there a secret to doing this? Is it the proportions that you're making it in? Wow, you are a very studied person on this. I, I'm, I'm so glad you brought that as a perfect segue. The ratios are so important in this. So like you said, the, the proportions. So for me, what I like to do, just keep it simple. Two, two ounces of tequila, one ounce of lime, and then half to three quarter ounce of the, of the triple sec. Um, when you put that together uh, into a shaker with some ice, um, what you're going to get is it, this, should, this should taste sour. Um, when you try this, if you have a little sip, you say, ah, you know what, this is too tart for me. I don't like the traditional ratios. Well, that's where you can go. Okay. I'm going to add just a little more of that orange liqueur and then make it a little bit, <clears throat> um, sweeter. So I'll give okay. a quick shake here while you're, so you can play with that just a little bit. Oh, you are, you really are saving this for later. Shouldn't that really be had fresh? So it can, this one I'm going to put, uh, with no ice in the glass for later, um, and I'm going to have this, you, you are right. Doing them fresh is the way to do it for sure. But you can actually like all those ratios that I just told you, you can batch those together into a bottle, some kind of receptacle. I'll put them back into the tequila bottle, an old tequila bottle, um, put that in the fridge. And that's good really for like, the lime juice is with, um, the Cointreau and the tequila, um, will stay relatively fresh, hmm. uh, and then it'll start to oxidize over the days and then it'll just taste different. Interesting. Um, but, but yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's if people want to do margaritas. Now, before we let you go here, Colin, I know there's also something called a sparkling Paloma. What is that? Oh, awesome. Yeah. So I think one of my favorite drinks too, um, the Paloma is gaining, gaining popularity. If you've been down south, what you'll usually get is just tequila and almost like an, an orange Fanta or a grapefruit Fanta, sorry. So it'll be, and, and, but when we, I've seen variations of this. So what I like to do is um, the same idea. You can get uh, Jarito's or San Pellegrino, like grapefruit soda. Um, and it's literally like two ounces of, uh, of your tequila, 
topped up with uh, that grapefruit soda. So not like an orange crush, like it's almost like more of a, right. not a sweet. Uh, and then and then what I like to do is put a little bit of like honey syrup or uh, and, and lemon there and some real fresh grapefruit. So all the stuff that's in there that uh, like, you know, some fresh citrus, put real citrus in with the lime, um, a little bit of fresh grapefruit. And, uh, <clears throat> and then you get you know, a little bit, a little bit of a more technique cocktail. And, and that's, that's sort of like a Collins, right? Like you're just booze and kind of soda water, but you're jazzing it up with these Mexican ingredients. Okay. This sounds delicious. Anything I need to know to finish that off? Uh, so for both of them, I mean, I, I love doing the salt rim. Uh, I've got um, like a jalapeno salt here. You, the, you know, it's such a basic drink that you can add and sub things in. For my margarita here, I actually put a little bit of a, like a McGinnis creme de banana, like a banana liqueur, just a splash. So it has a little hint of banana. Interesting. Um, and, and, you know, today, if, you, if, you, if you're listening to this and you're like, this sounds cool, <clears throat> head over to at Corby.Colin. I'm going to put both of those, the Paloma and the uh, uh, margarita recipe up there. So just on Instagram, at Corby.Colin. I love and, it. And uh, I can help you celebrate in style tonight. I'll bet. You sure sound like it. Colin, <laughs> thank you so much for that. <laughs> thank you very much for having me. I appreciate that. That's Colin McDougall, portfolio consultant at Corby Spirit and Wine Limited, helping us with a few little... Cinco de Mayo celebrations that you might want to be doing today. I I know for some people who needs a reason to have a margarita. Well, today that would be a good one to have a margarita. This is Mornings with Simi. Eleanor Sturko will be the candidate for the BC Liberals in the upcoming by-election in South Surrey to replace Stephanie Cadu. Now, if that name sounds familiar, it should. Sturko is an RCMP sergeant who is now getting into politics. Let's find out why. She joins us now to talk about this. Good morning. Good morning, Simi. Well, thanks for doing this today. So tell me, what made you decide that, you know what, policing is one thing, but now it's time to get into politics? Well, you know, I'm a resident of the Surrey South Riding Um I love it. I love Surrey. I, I think people know that. Um, I've served the community over the last several years as a police officer. And, and you know, like all communities, we have issues with the opioid crisis, um, issues with affordability and access to health care. And I'm, I'm ready to be a strong voice in Victoria to make sure that we have action immediately on these issues. But, you know, sorry, I, you know, what I want to really tell you as well is that, you know, people talk about me being a police officer and that really is a big part of what's inspired me um, to take this move. I was exposed to a lot of things dealing with people on the front line um, who, you know, were suffering greatly from the opioid crisis, dealing with parents that have lost children, families, impacted people suffering on the streets. And, you know, it really is something that's compelled me to to move this way into politics so that I can help the province move forward. I think that it's something that not only do we need, but people in British Columbia, we deserve it. So is this something that you pursued or were you pursued? You know, maybe a little bit of both, I have to say. Um, Over my nearly 13 years of policing, you know, you deal with people in poverty, you deal with people with mental health issues, untreated mental health problems. And after dealing with them, you think to yourself, what, what could we do to make this better? What kind of change would need to happen so that we don't have to keep repeating the cycle over and over? And so over you know, over a decade, I came up with ideas. And I've always thought, you know, if I was ever in power, I, this is what I would like to do. And so, you know, I've been thinking about maybe going into politics. And then, you know, I was approached by um, Kevin and his team. And, you know, it was a right fit. And I really think with the number of people dying every year, like last year, we lost over 2000 people due to drug toxicity deaths. That's an average of six people a day in BC losing their lives. I just was like, you know what, this is the right time, because I want to make a difference. And I think that I have a 
voice and I have a perspective that will really help make a change in Victoria. So is this something, are you going to quit your job? Are you on leave for your, how's that going to work? I mean, you work for the RCMP. Yeah, right now I'm on a leave of absence without pay. Um, I don't have any work. I'm not working for the RCMP at the moment. There is, you know, I'm, I'm actually not really in contact with anyone right now at the RCMP because I want to be able to maintain that that distance, that appropriateness. Um, so if I am elected, you know, when I am elected, I will resign my position with the RCMP. So I'm, I'm cutting my career short. But really, I do feel that it's important enough um, to make changes that we need now um, and to help the future of British Columbia that this is the right move for me. And so I'm really excited about this process. Okay, so if there's one single thing that you feel is the most the biggest reason why you would want to get into politics, what is that? Really, it's to help make a change for today that's going to impact future generations. You know, a lot of the stuff that we're dealing with today, you know, basic unaffordability of our province, the access to health care, a lot of these things are tied together. You know, um, right now we're looking at the NDP. They've had a lot of promises. They failed to deliver on those over the last five years. And even today with David Eby and Mike Farnsworth's announcement on looking at prolific offenders, it continues to be a piecemeal approach to what I see as a fundamental problem in BC. And that really is stemming from our tremendous problem with untreated mental health issues and addictions. It has a direct nexus and impact on municipalities. And it's time to make a change. Well, I will say you certainly sounding like a politician, so you're off to a good start there. Uh, listen, best of luck. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much, Simi. Take care. You too. That's Eleanor Sturko. She is now the BC Liberal candidate in the upcoming by-election, which, by the way, the date for that has not been set. But this is the by-election that will be called soon to replace Stephanie Cadu, who has retired to take a position as the federal accessibility officer. So Eleanor Sturko has been picked by the BC Liberal to run for them to replace Stephanie Kedu. Don't know who the NDP candidate is yet, but that's a very familiar name, I think, to a lot of people, particularly in Surrey, because for years she has been the uh, longtime media spokesperson for the Surrey RCMP detachment. So a very interesting new era, I think, that we're opening up here in BC politics. And I'm sure you're going to be hearing a lot more about it. And by the way, that's a very tight race. At least it was last time around. In the last provincial election, the BC Liberals won that by about 1,100 votes. The NDP had increased its share of the vote. We'll see what happens this time around.